0: This morning, we continue our sermon series, Swimming Upstream, Christians and Culture, as we make our way through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Today we hear a passage about spiritual gifts. It's from actually three long chapters. We're only reading a few verses. You can thank me later for that. But the reading is from 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them and everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of powerful deeds. To another, prophecy. To another, the discernment of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. According to Google Maps, from our church at the corner of 61st and Ward Parkway to Paul's church in Corinth is just shy of 6,000 miles. According to the calendar, the distance in time is just shy of the proverbial 2,000 years. And while that's a gulf, a gap, it's not the big one. The big one is culture. That's the big difference. For instance, you you know, you've heard it said that the New Testament was written in Greek. So Paul wrote this letter in Greek. Seminaries no longer require the biblical languages. Big mistake in my opinion. And so to drive that home sometimes at the seminary, I would kind of prod the students into taking it as an elective. And the way I did that was very clever. I would do a little exercise that we were used to doing. I would say, okay, you know how we always pair up and we're going to work on a biblical text. So I had them pair up and I said, now I'm going to hand out the text on a piece of paper. You Underline key words, circle things, write in the margins, whatever you want. Spend 10, 15 minutes working on it. We'll come back together and talk about it. They were used to this, except I handed them a page of Greek and they just looked at it. You know, they just looked at it. You know that expression, it's Greek to me? (laughs) There's a gulf. Paul didn't write in English. Or how about this cultural difference? In Paul's time in the city of Corinth was the temple of Asclepion. It was dedicated to Asclepius, who was the Greek god of healing. If you were ill or had some kind of malady, you went to the temple hoping to be made well. And those who found some kind of relief or healing would pretty much by obligation get an artisan to, out of terracotta, form a copy of the body part. I'm not making this up. (laughs) These body parts of things that had been healed, like legs and feet and hands and arms, but also genitalia, all kinds of body parts. And they posted these on the street en route to the temple. You can still see the body parts in a museum there in Corinth. Needless to say, St. Luke's and KU Med do not do this. (laughs) They have a blue sign with an H pointing the way. No body parts. There's a cultural gap between us and the text. But there's also a connection. Remember, Paul writes for two general reasons. The first is, he writes, in response to reports he'd heard about things going on there, but he also writes in response to their letter in which they ask questions. And the thing on spiritual gifts is a response to their question. They asked him because there were some in the community who had the gift of speaking in tongues, this ecstatic utterance. And they were sort of flaunting that over others. And so Paul writes to answer their questions. None of you emailed me this week asking about the gift of tongues, and I get it, but I've lost count of how many times someone has said to me over coffee or lunch, I don't know what to do with my life. Why am I here? Which relates directly to Paul's discussion about spiritual gifts. And it may well speak to why when we had David Brooks and Miroslav Wolf do that forum on A Life Worth Living, so many tuned in. I love that quote from Mark Twain. The two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. So Paul is answering their questions. But as I make my way through the whole three chapters, it seems to me he is asking questions of us. Here are three that I've identified. The first one, what would you say is your spiritual gift? Now before you even take off on that road, let's get rid of the word spiritual for a moment. It's it's sort of a roadblock for a lot of people. They think, oh no, it's got to be something in the church. And even in this list, there's tongues and miracles and prophecy. But this isn't the only list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Paul has other lists and they're not exhaustive. So maybe a better way to do it would be to say, "Okay, what are your strengths? What are the gifts and abilities, the talents that you have? There are two ways, if you don't know, to figure it out. Maybe others, but these two definitely work. The first one is to think about what gives you great joy and pleasure. If getting an apartment ready for Afghan refugees just does it for you, that's probably your gift. Or if taking flowers or meals on wheels to some shut-in and watching them light up, if the hat gives you great joy, that's probably your gift. If you defend the rights of the poor as a social worker, as an attorney, and it's not just your job, but you love doing it, that's your gift. The the, the flip side is the other way. What is it that, I'll say, ticks you off? What is it about the system that just drives you crazy and it shouldn't be this way? What injustices stand out? I, I just finished a book this week called One by One by One. It's written by a neurologist based in Boston named Aaron Berkowitz, but who volunteers a lot of his time in Haiti. And the reason is simple. He realized how many people there who, if they lived in any advanced civilization, would not die so early. If they lived 200 miles away in Miami, that that wouldn't have killed them, whatever it was. Do you hear it? Identify what it is that you love and what it is that you think needs to be fixed. That brings us to the second question. How would you compare your gift others? Or does your gift, does it even matter? In Paul's day, the people who had this gift of tongues, this ecstatic utterances, they were flaunting it over others. If Paul can be pinned down to say the best gift of all, he says it's love. That's what he writes chapter 13 for. Not to be read at weddings, but to say that love is the best gift. But he also does something here with the body parts. I know you can't forget those, the Asclepion, right? He does this little burlesque, it's a comedy routine. It really is, even in the Greek and and in the English for that matter. He says, you know how absurd it would be if the foot said, well, I guess I'm not a part of the body, I'm not a hand. Or if the eyes said to the ears, we don't need you, we can see just fine. He has this whole litany of body parts in order to say that that everybody is needed. The thing is though, this body part speech, it was a really common speech. Civic leaders used it, politicians used it, except the way they used it was to remind the masses that they're just toes and feet, not the head. Paul turns that upside down, shows the diversity of the body. I I, I ran across a great parable this week In the early 1900s, there was a British scientist by the name of Francis Galton. His his work was mostly with breeding and genetic stuff, but he had this theory of the superiority, intellectual superiority of certain people, and he pretty much had no regard for dumb folks. He just couldn't abide it. And so he did all this work to always kind of prove the superiority of other people. So one time he went to a fair in the west of England, and there was this contest. They had an ox tied up, it was going to be butchered and processed, and everybody that wanted to could pay sixpence and write on a piece of paper what they thought it was going to weigh after it had been processed. So you pay your sixpence, you write down, uh, you know, your pounds, etc. And And Galton knew that most of the folks didn't have a clue, they, they couldn't even follow the arguments of politicians, how are they going to guess weights? So what he did is he asked for, 800 people did this. He asked for the 800 ballots because he wanted to create a bell curve and just show again there's a bunch of dumb people, but there's just a few of us smarties. But then something unexpected happened. He averaged all the guesses. Now the ox came in at 1,198 pounds. Nobody got it right, but the average was off by one pound, and this has been done Over and over. Social scientists call that the wisdom of crowds. The Apostle Paul calls it the body of Christ. Everybody is needed. It brings us to the third question Did you know that with your gift, you could change the world? You can change the world. Berkowitz, that neurologist, he says, of the world's population, 8 billion, roughly half, 4 billion people on the earth lack adequate health care. Well, that's a staggering number. So then he says, You, you want to know how big it is? Let's just take a billion. If you counted to a billion, one number per second, it would take you 120 years. It's a big number. But rather than get paralyzed by the population of the world or the population of Haiti, what he did was give himself to one patient at a time. You you, you have a gift. You really do. And you could do something with it, even if it's just one thing for one person. One person who needs a ride to medical appointments. One person whose house needs repairs or whose lawn needs mowing. One student who needs tutoring. Sometimes, if you pay attention, you'll notice that the clergy on staff here try not to call themselves ministers but pastors because all of us are ministers, the New Testament says. It means people who serve. You don't have to go to seminary. I think it was the next to last year when I was still at the seminary before retiring. It was New student orientation, late summer day, just before the fall semester, 25 students incoming, something like that. And you've been to orientations, you know what it's like. You tour the grounds, someone shows you the schedule of classes, here's how to register, here's financial aid, blah, 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 you know, all the stuff. Well, then somebody, I don't even remember who, she was going to lead us in worship. She was on staff, and she said what we were going to do. And it sounded really corny to me, I have to say. And there are some people who have the gift of corny ideas. I have the gift of cynicism. And so I kind of rolled my eyes. (laughs) And I thought, this is going to be bad. Now, here's the backdrop. All through the First Testament, God will, on occasion, say, Who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And the characters, different characters say, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. So she said... One at a time, the 25 students are going to get up, briefly tell their story of how they are being called and coming to the seminary, and they're going to end by saying, here I am. And then we're supposed to say, there you are. And, and it, was, it was incredible. They told their story and they said, so here I am. And we said, there you are. If there's a fourth question, it's the one God's always, always, always asking. Who will go for me?